You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it and um, try to record our thoughts coherently as we can to be released <laughs> into the universe for coherence. Whatever. Coherence is a lot of pressure. Are we sure I, we want to go that far? <laughs> I mean, it, it's one of the few things we try to do coherently and consistently. Uh, yeah, I just thought, you know, maybe if we ignored that factor, then we wouldn't feel like all the weight of it, you know, just kind of one of those unspoken expectations. So <laughs> uh, I think we do pretty good. I mean, occasionally we get a clarifying question here and there, which I do appreciate. Um, right. But, you know, for the most part, we we, we kind of keep it together. I mean, we, we definitely take plenty of tangents, but, you know, we <laughs> I think we wind up going from point A to point B most of the time. The tangents are the fun part. Um, uh, yeah, probably. I mean, depending on the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're we're going to have a big tangent here in a little bit because we're going to like go way off of script as far as biblical text and go into some Talmudic agada, and um, but ah, we'll the agada, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and those are that's you know. That's fun stuff, but I think there's some really good things for us to think about with those stories, and we'll we'll get there. But uh, we're actually going to pick up in First Kings chapter six. Uh, we spent most of last week, or a good portion of last week, just talking about verse one of this chapter, uh, and we were talking about the 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 dating, uh-huh. and and when was this written? Because it seems like here in First Kings, we've got this really specific date. Mm-hmm. And we got this really specific time, and we talked about how it may not be as specific as it comes across. And the main point of that verse, and I don't remember if I said this last week or not, and I've got to sleep a few hours since then, um, is that this is a real historic event that happened at a point in time. Whether or not the dates are 100% completely accurate, we can find them on a calendar really doesn't matter. That's not the point the writer's trying to make. The writer's trying to make the point, this did happen. Mm-hmm. And that's the important thing. And so, um, you know, sometimes I think we can get so caught up in the particulars, we miss the overarching uh, intent. And not everything is meant to be just laid out so specifically that there's no questioning it. And I know, I know, I know that just flies in the face of everybody who's been taught the Bible doesn't have errors. Um, it, it, you know, as far as truth goes, there's no errors. But sometimes the facts get a little muddy because people were involved and people uh, forget things and people make mistakes in their writings. There's typos. There's, you know, these kinds of things happen. And, you know, that's one of the things we do here is we try to face those head on and not ignore them because I've seen too many people who suddenly confront a critic or go out into college and somebody makes that statement, well, the Bible's got all these mistakes and errors, and all of a sudden their faith is destroyed because somebody lied to them, and that person who lied to them was their parents or the person in church they were learning from. So yeah. I don't want to be that person. Well, and I think, it, well, it, it goes back to that 
uh, idea about uh, inerrancy versus infallibility and and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. And and also, you know, there might be things like this in the Bible to help maybe teach us the things that are really important versus the things Mm -hmm. that aren't so important. You know, (laughs) right. Well, and, you know, and I think that's when we have to learn how to read for intent, not necessarily look for, you know, absolute verifiable facts. Sure. Now, those are great when we find them. I, I am 100% in favor of celebrating every verifiable fact we can find. Mm-hmm. But the, the intent is always clear if we take a second to think about it. And that was the whole point of this verse. Solomon ruled in a specific point in time. Solomon built the temple in a specific point in time. We know this. This is an undeniable fact. Whether or not it was, you know, 400 years from the Exodus or it was 410 or, you know, however many mm-hmm. generations may have passed, it doesn't really matter. So um, we're going to pick up in verse two. And verse two says, The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's basically 90 feet uh, long, 30 feet wide, and 40 feet high. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, by today's standards, not a huge worship area. Um, it's actually kind of small when we think about the fact that it is for the entire nation. Um, however, what is interesting about this is it's exactly twice as big as the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. The, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle is 10 by 10 cubits. It's 20 by 20 in the temple. Uh, the only place there's um, uh, any kind of discrepancy is in the height the um temple is 30 cubits high and the tabernacle was only 10 cubits high which makes sense when you think that the tabernacle was supposed to be able to be moved and so some concession to the abilities of humanity had to be made there yeah it was a a tent (laughs) versus versus stone walls Mm -hmm. Uh, and we the other thing we need to know is these are interior dimensions this is not the exterior dimensions the the exterior walls were actually several cubits thick in in various places so these finished dimensions are the interior sizes of the rooms not the exterior the exterior was actually quite a bit larger so verse three uh we're told there's a hall a vestibule 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 thank you for some reason i said my brain went that's going to sound like vegetable when you say it and then i almost said vegetable like three times so anyway there's a portico and a porch um, they run the width of the temple and they're 10, um, the porch runs, it runs the width of the temple and it's 10 cubits deep. Now, halakhically, I'm having a hard time talking here. Uh, this is considered to be a separate building. So this is in practice and function is basically what we're saying. The Jews considered the porch to be a completely separate building, even though it was attached to the temple. And so it's not as sacred as the rest of the, as the temple. Mm-hmm. So people who were uh, otherwise not allowed into the temple could come to the porch and congregate there. Now, is um, this what's referred to as Solomon's porch? You know, I kept looking for something that would specifically say, this is Solomon's porch. I could not find that, but I believe this is correct. And so um, I, everywhere I looked, I'm like, come on, give me this, because it is an addition made by Solomon that was not part of the tabernacle. The ta- tabernacle did not, did not have this porch. So, um, you know, it, it served a function of allowing for, for assembling without going into the temple proper. And going into the temple proper required certain 
um, conditions be met by the people going into the temple. You could go onto the porch and not meet all of those conditions. Mm -hmm. So um, we aren't going into Leviticus, so I'm not going to talk about what all those conditions were. But hey, Dr. Heiser has a wonderful series on Leviticus. Absolutely phenomenal. That's a um, yeah. That's one of yeah. the it's one of the best series on Leviticus I've ever heard. I've listened to it three or four times. I mean, it's that good. So I really do. I check out the Naked Bible and check out their um, their study on that because it's worth the information. Yeah, and there's not now, a barking dog. I, I, this is true. I yeah, did, although Hector's... I did one time hear one of the pugs snore. I think on one of the episodes. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, Hector's a little more vocal than just snoring. There's there was a squirrel running on the fence. Imagine that. <laughs> but anyway, verse four uh, says, and he made for the house windows recessed frames. Um, there's varying ways of reading this. What exactly is a recessed frame? Uh, we we aren't really sure. Rashi claims that these are windows that narrowed as they came in. So the outside, when you looked at the windows, it looked like a really huge window. But then as it came through this wall, which was several cubits thick, that it narrowed down. And the purpose was to remind people that the light inside the temple was not from an external source. It was from the presence of God. So therefore, you did not need big windows opening out into the world for the people to be able to see. And maybe me, me from a from a practical aspect, I'm thinking recessed frames. That makes sense. They're in a location that gets pretty hot during the summer. You're going to put your window pane back. I mean, I don't know if they have any kind of. I guess they weren't really using panes. Like, would they use like Isinglass or something? Uh, I, you know, I, but I, I, I looks, yeah. Now that I think about it, it I could be totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think ice and glasses is much lighter, but the but the point is that uh you know, in, in this kind of area you really aren't going to have windows like we think of windows. They're just going right. to be openings. Yeah, it's going to be yeah, a wind hole. Exactly. And so now there are some suggestions that these had lattice over them, which that would have been normal for mm -hmm. some kind of partition between the inside and the outside. Um one scholar yeah, suggests totally that off. Just thinking yeah. about it, I was like, yeah, they wouldn't have had glass windows. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> well, I was thinking, if you want the sunlight hitting outside the window so that the heat radiation goes away, but that's a totally mm -hmm. modern problem. Yeah, well, and that's the, pro that's the thing. We've got to watch when we read. Are we looking at um, things the way we understand them, or are we going back to, to a previous time? Which actually leads to a really good point, because other scholars have said, hey, we need to look at temples from that same time period and try to look at how they're constructed. And, you know, we still have remnants and archaeological digs that tell us a lot about it. And, um, you know, they've, they've tried to explain what the Hebrew temple looked like based on how these other temples were, were constructed. But we don't have a really good, um, a really good explanation that we can pinpoint here. Now, one thing to point out, the temple and even the tabernacle itself was not unique in form and style to Israel. That all over the Near East, this, this formula for the way a temple would, would be designed and how it would function would be something that was understood and copied and used through many, many cultures. And it was not something that um, the designers of the temple and tabernacle just came up with on their own as something 
original to Israel itself. And I know some people have gotten really offended by that idea because they want, you know, they want this to be the biggest, the best, and the, and the most unusual and the most awe-inspiring. And that's just not the way it is. Uh, I think one of the things we need to remember is temples are supposed to be an earthly representation of the heavenly throne room. Mm -hmm. So if you have these sons of God who are pretending to be gods, who are accepting worship as the true God, they were one time in that throne room. They saw it. They inhabited that space. Mm -hmm. um, and so why wouldn't they copy the biggest and the best? Why wouldn't they try to utilize that for themselves? And that's, you know, a, a supernatural explanation, but let's talk about a very practical explanation. Even today, if you drive through a large city and you drive past several churches, nine times out of 10, you're going to be able to look at churches of all these different denominations and even different religions and go, that's a church. That's a place of worship. Mm -hmm. There are certain hallmarks that, that places of worship still have in common today. Why? Because this communicates to the public, this is what this, the purpose of this building is for. You know how to approach this, build, this building with respect and to do it properly because the building itself tells you how to behave. And so it's not any different. And so we need to be careful not to think that, oh, well, this has to be totally unique in order to be valid. It doesn't. Sometimes we do things a particular way because that's what works. And it doesn't matter what culture or nation or ethnicity or even what religion you are. It's just a matter of practicality. And that's okay. It doesn't diminish God. It doesn't diminish uh, the temple in any form or fashion. So the, the other thing to keep in mind is the temple's being built by an expert temple builder. Hiram had built many temples in his own town, and he had a way of doing it. He had a specific formula. This is the guy Solomon hired. I mean, you know, watch HGTV. If you watch HGTV, any one show after about the third season, if you're lucky, the designers are all going to start doing the same thing. That particular designer is going to have their signature thing. They're going to use the same finishes, the same kind of layout. It's going to be repetitious over and over again because mm -hmm. that's what they're good at. And why are they good at it? Because people liked it in the beginning. It functioned well. And it's effective for them to continue in this pattern. Mm -hmm. Same thing. I, it, it's so easy to, to understand some of this stuff when we think about the fact people were always people. Well, and even like you were talking about uh, seeing different churches of different denominations being able to, to see various things that they have in common. I mean, let's take it a step back from that. You go into a city you don't know, mm -hmm. you're going to have similar signage to tell mm -hmm. you how to get around the town on the interstate. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a common language among people. They, they know when they enter a, a temple what to look yeah. for to know what they're supposed to experience there. And uh, that's, that's uh, definitely something, you know, uh, I, I actually, I was, I was writing, um, I need to finish this project. I've got a writing project that I need to finish, um, but it was... Uh, Doesn't everyone? Yeah. Well, you'd be surprised. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, but no, I was writing about, there is, there's a psychological phenomenon, and I think I mentioned on the podcast before, it's called the doorway effect. 
And it's mm-hmm. like, have you ever gone into a, a room to do something you don't typically do in there? And then you're like, oh, why did I come in here? It's because your brain naturally, you know, if let's say, you know, you're, you're going to go into the kitchen to take out the trash as opposed to get food, you know, you, right. you get there and you're like, why did I come in here? I'm not hungry. I, you know, you, your brain resets when you pass a threshold. And so you mm-hmm. think about it going into a temple or a place to worship. How much more is that amplified as you pass all of these uh, symbols, all these things that kind of prime you as you go through the door. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the coolest places I attended, and I know cool's not really, I, mean, I don't use that as in like cool and hip. I mean, it kind of was, but whatever. But one of the, <laughs> most, one of the things, that I, I, one of the more interesting places I attended worship was there was a, a, a church in Dallas, and in front of the, uh, the sanctuary was actually an art gallery. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it had rotating art pieces. And so, as you went through, and it, you, you would kind of get like this sense of creativity and imagination as as you started to go into uh, where they would where the worship was happening. So I, it's really an uh, an interesting uh, way of looking at things. You know, you kind of you have those things that 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 get your brain ready as you're as you're pulling up into the parking lot and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, there's the, you, you see the, the logo for your church or you see the cross or you see the, the things as you walk through and then you go into the sanctuary and there's usually a cross somewhere and there's, you know, there, there's sometimes art on the walls. There's, you know, sometimes some churches hang uh, banners and, you know, it, there's just different things that prime you for the experience you're going to have. And I Here's know, a, I, and I, and I say experience a lot. I know that's kind of a, a word that everyone's kind of down on lately, a worship experience. But if you're not experiencing something during worship, I, I don't right. know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> that you're experiencing whatever's happening there. There's a really interesting book, and I cannot remember who wrote it right now, but uh, it's called The Sense of the Sacred. And it goes into the architecture of different cathedrals and mm. churches and things. And it discusses this, the, the reasoning and the impact of architecture on the worship experience. Uh, because, you know, it's just an undeniable fact. The space you inhabit to worship actually does impact your, your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're interested in that, I, I do recommend that book because it's just it's not a huge read, but it's a really good, um, a good thought um, exercise. You know, it kind of invites you to play with your own worship experience and how has the different places of worship you've attended, how have they impacted you? How, how have they helped you or hindered you from worshiping? And so um, as an artist, you know, that's always, man, what kind of church building should we have? I, I, the art side, well, I mean, artist side of me wants that that grand, you know, draw your eye upward, get lost in the the beauty of the moment. And the practical side of me is like, feed the poor with all the money. So there's, you know, always that conflict there. But um, that's probably a discussion for the other day, another day. But when, when scholars are trying to figure out what the temple for Israel looked like, you know, they've looked at Akkadian, Phoenician, uh, Egyptian, even some Dravidian, which that's, uh, ancient India, uh, some of the designs in those temples to try to figure out what's going on here. Um, 
you know, some of these comparis comparisons are very stretched. They're kind of forced because we're looking at some vastly different geographic um, areas, some different time periods. But overall, uh, these comparisons have kind of led scholars to to come to the conclusion that we are looking at lattice work within the within the um, windows of the temple. So, um, you know, take that for what you will. I, I I think it's interesting that you know even the windows have become a point of much scholarly debate. Mm -hmm. uh, so, well, and, verse five. And speaking says, uh, real quick, this is. Little piece of free trivia. We can file this under other oddities. I was actually listening to uh, a, an art podcast about the the Taj Mahal. You're talking about India, mm -hmm. and one thing that a little known fact about it is the 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 pillars, the spires on on the sides mm -hmm. are actually slightly angled out, and the reason is because when you're up close to it, looking up at it. If you were to look at it up close and look up at the spires from the center, and they were straight up and down, it would look like they were leaning in. Right. But they're offset just enough so that whenever you are looking at it up close from the center, the towers look straight up and down. Yeah, the illusion. It's very nice. Astounding the amount of work that went into that place. Oh, when when you think about you know whether we're looking at European chapels and and cathedrals or you know the something like the Taj Mahal. I yes, the fact that people were capable of doing this and doing the mathematical equations and figuring it, it's just I wouldn't have done it. Okay, right. <laughs> these are things beyond my capabilities. Um, I'm just glad I had the ability to appreciate it. So anyway, verse five it says he also built a structure against the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. Now, um, there's going to be kind of a break in the description here in a little bit, and it's going to come back. There's going to be a conversation with God and, and Solomon, and then there's going to be further uh, clarification about what's being said here. And um, this is a secondary support structure, and we can really see that in the, the verses after the conversation with Solomon and God. But it's a secondary support structure that was on three sides of the temple that was designed to, you know, help make sure that it didn't go anywhere. So then it goes on to describe this, this um, structure that goes around. It says the lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, the third was seven cubits broad, for around the outside of the house he made offsets on the walls in order that the support beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. So this structure is against the temple but it's not locked into the temple, if that makes sense. It's just right there beside. And the lowest cell of the structure was the smallest. But you got to remember, again, these dimensions, they're the interior finished dimensions, not the exterior. So the wall between the temple and the cell at the bottom was the widest. And then as you went up to the next, it narrowed by a cubit. And by the third one, you were down to two cubits. So the wall between the temple and the cells actually kind of rose in a stepped pyramid kind of uh, manner. So that it, the lowest cell was actually furthest out from the temple and the highest one being closest in. So this really did provide an anchor 
for the temple that kind of offset any kind of tendency for the temple walls to to flare outward at the top and keep them square. And by making that incline towards the interior of the temple, but then the outside would look perfectly square to any observer because the cells were, were structured in such a way to be parallel with each other on the exterior wall. So have fun trying to envision that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, I actually described everything in the next page of notes. Skipping ahead, verse seven. When the house was built, it was with the stone prepared at the quarry, so that it was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. So, Solomon makes this decision to keep iron tools out of the temple, and this is even during construction. And okay, let's start off with this is a very odd decision. This is a bizarre decision because when you're trying to work stone at this point in time, iron was the highest tech usable tool at anyone's disposal. So to say, no, you cannot use these as we're building the temple, or at least on site of building the temple, totally weird. Okay, so we can begin there. And we have some really interesting commentaries trying to explain this. And one of the things I found interesting about it, Christian commentaries just gloss over it. You know, it's no big deal. Solomon just didn't want there to be iron tools, whatever. Jewish commentaries go, hold up. There's an issue here. We've got to solve it. And so you get some really interesting stories. Now, um, the first thing we got to ask is, before we get into some of these stories, is why would Solomon make such a prohibition? Um, the scripture that is cited is Exodus 20, verse 25. And it says, if you make an altar stone, you shall not build it of, of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. <clears throat> now, there's a couple of issues with this particular verse being cited because the temple stones were already hewn. They were already cut. That happened at the quarry. So automatically this verse doesn't seem to apply. The second thing, the prohibition against using tools on the rock is only for the rock of the altar. So it seems very likely that what Solomon is doing is to take a principle from this verse and then extend it to be far more strict and far more restricting than. it was originally intended to be. So the Mishnah offers this explanation. It says the altar is intended to prolong man's life and iron is used to shorten man's life. It is not fitting that the shortener be applied to the lengthener. Okay, that's fine. But again, we're not, the prohibition is not for the entire temple. The Rabban says the sword is the legacy of Esau and has no place in the temple. Okay, speculative. And we got to remember, I I think part of where he's getting that is it was just accepted that David and Esau were very connected because they're the two men in the Bible described as ruddy. They're both men of war. Mm -hmm. They're hunters. So uh, there is that connection between the two. And Solomon's supposed to be the beginning of a new era. His name means either peace or wholeness. And so he is supposed to be the one who embodies everything that was lacking under David's leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, Ibn Ezra says that the stones were hewn at the at the quarry and not on site because if the the workers threw away the cut off the cast off pieces of stone that 
it would somehow uh, denigrate or devalue the honor of the temple. I don't know how he gets that, but, you know, I'll share it for you, with you for what it is. Um, and so we're, we're still, you know, there's still no good answer about why um, iron was not allowed. Uh, there could, could be some validity in each of these reasons, I think, that they're kind of reaching for. Uh, perhaps Solomon's being very careful to make that sharp distinction between him as the king of peace and David, his father, as the warrior. Hush, Hector. Um, uh, and speaking of animal noises, if anyone heard that other sound just a minute ago, that is a rooster. <laughs> yes. There's and no one screaming in the background, <laughs> as far as I know, rooster? anyway. But no, no, it's a rooster going through puberty, so he well, sounds really messed up. <laughs> well, and the, uh, I, we're getting way off track here, but the funny thing about your rooster is it sounds like when he crows, it sounds like he's just reciting it off of a script. He's not actually, like, it's like he got called to do the reading, and he's not good at reading out loud. It, I don't know how else to explain that, but think of that as you will. And he's saying happy birthday. So you can, you can hear it. Uh, happy birthday. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I don't know if that picked up. But he's like on cue. I heard Okay. It. So uh, anyway, <laughs> so we, we, there may be this desire, like I said, with Solomon to, to make that distinction that he is not his father. He's not a man of war. He's going to be a man of peace. And, you know, weaponry also wasn't just associated with Esau and David. It was also connected with Cain all the way back in Genesis 4, because who's the first person to use a weapon against another human? Cain. And then later on, his descendant, Tubal-Cain, and this is in Genesis 4.22, he is um, known as somebody who forges tools and weapons. And this is what he does. And also the watchers in the book of Enoch, this is one of the things that the watchers taught humanity was how to fashion tools for war. And so this is part of what led to the, this great proliferation of evil on the face of the earth was the teachings of the watchers to humanity. And so these are some of the more reasonable ideas about why iron was not allowed in the um, construction of the temple. But, you know, why stop with the reasonable? This is Faith and Other Oddities. We're going to go straight for the oddity. We're going to talk about craziness beyond crazy. And then we're going to talk about why it's important. Um, so we're going to go into the story of the Shamir. Now, there are various references to the Shamir in the Talmud. And it is believed to be one of the 10 wonders of the world that was created at twilight on the sixth day of creation. And this is a mythical beast, basically, with magical powers, depending on what you're reading. Because like most mythical, magical things, the exact nature of this being kind of changes according to which description you're reading. And so it can either be a stone just some kind of weird green stone, or it can be a worm. And one reason why it's thought to be a living being versus a, a stone is the fact that the Talmud says that it's able to cut iron and wood and 
stone and gemstones with just a glance. So, you know, uh, stones don't typically have eyes. And we first kind of hear about the Shamir when the Talmud's discussing making the, the priest's breastplate the, with the gemstones on it, and they had the symbols carved in it. It says this is what Moses um, uses to, to accomplish that. Now, the longest story of the Shamir, this is found in the, in the um, Babylonian Talmud. It's in Tractate Gittin, um 68.8. So if uh, 68A, if anybody wants to look it up and verify what I'm say seeing, uh, that's available online. Uh, Gittin is G-I-T-T-E-N, a T-I-N, sorry. So you can look that up. Um, so before we get into that, though, I want to talk about where the text itself opens the door for weirdness and how we get to this kind of weirdness. So, um, I think I got my page numbers in the wrong order. I did. Excuse me while I correct this, because otherwise it was going to be weirder than <laughs> needed to be and a lot more complicated. Fair so, enough. Um, first of all, the, you need to know that Gittin is not commenting on First Kings 6. It's, it's just not. It's not even talking about Chronicles. It's commenting on Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 8. And that reads, this is the ESV. It says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasury of kings and provinces. I, had, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So how do you get from this verse to Solomon using a worm to build the temple? I'm going to have to like. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Right. Well, okay. So this is where I get the to let large my geek... worm. <laughs> a large worm. Yeah. Let's get to let my geek flag fly. Okay. So, um, in um, in one line it says, "I got singers, both men and women." So, Sharim va. Uh, sorry, my Hebrew is going out of out of my head. Uh, Sharot, Sharim va Sharot, and so Sharim is the masculine form of men who sing songs. Sharot is the feminine form. So you've got that duality, male and female. Okay. The next line says, and concubines, the delights of the son of man. And so what the, he, what the ESV translates as concubines is a troublesome word. We really aren't for certain that's what it means. Uh, look up your English translations. If you don't believe me, look at how many variations there are. You've got wives, women, beautiful women, we have harem. These are all uh, possibilities. But then you also have um, musical instruments is another possibility. Male and female cupbearers is another possibility. A butler and female cupbearers. These are just some of the translations that English translations give you for this particular word. And when you have that much variance in English translations, this means the Hebrew is giving the translator fits, okay? They're trying to, to figure out what it means and trying to be the ones who get it right. Even the Brown Driver Briggs. Now, if you go into a Hebrew class, one of the first books you're going to be told about by is the Brown Driver Briggs or the BDB. And everyone who knows Hebrew knows this book. And it says that this word translated as concubines, meaning unknown. 
Mm-hmm. So when your dictionary can't even give you a, a possible definition, um, then we have an issue. So that line in the Hebrew reads shada vashadot. Shada, sorry, shada vashadot. I know how to say these words and I practiced them 20 times, but I need more sleep. Mm-hmm. So the first, if we read this, like we read the first line back with the singers, the first time the, the word is feminine singular and the second time would be feminine plural. Um, so we'd have Sharim Vasharot and Shadi, Shada Vashadot. So we have this kind of parallelism in here, but the problem is this double usage where the first line gives you male and female, and this one seems to just on basic grammar give you two feminine. Some of the translators have said that's totally not possible. The second line needs to echo the first line. So it has to be male and female, which actually kind of works. If you aren't looking for musical instruments or concubines or whatever, and you say, hey, Shada is possibly the same word as Shadim. And so how we would get Shadim from Shada would be really easy because it's just one little mark, one little line to, to be the difference between the, ben, the ending, which is a hey and a mem. And so if you know any Hebrew at all and you've studied a lot of um, you know, divine counsel worldview, you probably know that Shadim means demon. Mm-hmm. So now if you're, if you're parsing that line according to that parallelism between the singers, male and female, and then this Shada Shadi, a Shadot, now you have an issue. And the Babylonian commentators, man, they get into this. How are we going to translate these words? What are, you know, how are we going to make sense of it? And so, especially given the fact that the parallelism would demand almost that the second line, <clears throat> excuse me, the second line would be that male and female also. So um, they, they come up with a list of possible suggestions that pools and bathhouses, carts and what have you. And they talk about how each translation comes from different geographic areas. Uh, and the point is there's a huge discussion and I'm not going to go into it. So, but the, the point that I want to point, go into is that one of the accepted translations was that the second line isn't concubines, the delight of men, it is male and female demons. So if you accept that translation, now you have another problem. Why does Solomon have male and female demons? And so this is how we get back to 1 Kings 5. And because the, the, the question is, why does he even need them? The, the only obvious answer would be to build a temple, of course. So now you have to construct a story. So this is a paraphrase of the story. I, I'm not going to go into the whole, because it's, it's a long story. It is like a ridiculously long story in comparison to other stories in the Talmud. Okay. And so it says that Solomon needed the Shamir if he's going to shake the stones for the temple without iron. And the thing is, he did not know where to find it. So he goes to the Sanhedrin and he says, hey, guys, you know, the Sanhedrin being the ruling body over the temple, the, the guys who are supposedly so smart and know everything. 
He says, how in the world am I going to find the Shamir? And they said, oh, well, this is easy. You know, you go get you a male and female demon and you torture them and they will tell you um, where to find it. Well, that's exactly what he does. But unfortunately, they're like, hey, we have no idea where in the world you're, you can find this. However, Ashmedai, the king of the demons, knows where to find it. And so they told Solomon where to find Ashmedai. So Ashmedai is kind of an unusual character, and we're going to, you're going to see why. But he lives on the top of a mountain, and he, he spends his days going to the, um, going to the this Torah school in the heavens. And then he studies Torah there, and then he comes down and he studies Torah on the earth. And this is how he spends his time, divided between studying Torah in, on, in heaven and on earth. And so not really behavior you expect from the king of the demons, right? Not so much. Yeah. And when he's done studying, he goes back home where he has this pit full of wine and, I'm sorry, full, full of water. And he keeps this pit sealed with a rock and he makes sure that nobody's messed with his pit of water as well. And when he re realizes that the seal is intact, then he'll open it up, he'll have a drink, he'll reseal it, and he'll get us to sleep. So. Now that these demons, this male and female demons, have told Solomon where to find it, Solomon sends uh, Benaniah to go get Ashmedai. And so he comes up with this really clever plan that allows him to basically replace the water in the well with wine without disturbing the seal. Ashmedai drinks it, and Ashmedai is rendered unconscious, and Benaniah is capable of um, placing a chain on Ashmedai that with the name of God on it, that allows him to be subdued. And so when Ashmedai realizes, though, at the beginning that the well is now full of wine, he says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it by, is not wise. Now, if you recognize that, it's because you've read Sol uh, Proverbs before, mm -hmm. what Solomon wrote. This is Ashmedai saying this proverb, and that's Proverbs 20.11. He also says, "Fordham wine and new wine, which take away understanding, which that's Hosea 4.11. And so it's really interesting that we have these words of scripture in the mouth of the king of the demons. And we, you know, got this king of demons studying Torah. So, which reminds me of, you know, when we talk about New Testament, even the demons know the Bible. They know, you know mm -hmm. what God has said. So we see that this is part of Jewish tradition. This is not something new to Christianity. Um, so Benaniah brings Ashmedai back. But on the way back, several things happen. One is uh, Ashmedai is like knocking over trees and rocks and what have you. And he's going to knock down this home of this little old widow woman. And the, the woman comes to him and says, no, please don't, don't ruin my house. Don't, don't destroy my home. And when she spoke to him, he turned to her, to, her to, to hear her, and he breaks a bone. And that's when he says that a soft word will break a bone. Also another proverb. Um, Why he, don't we have a movie of this? Like, right? Where's Hollywood on this? Like, seriously. I, I'm, it, it's, it's a crazy story. And, like, this is the first, you know, little bit. Because then he 
goes and he helps a blind man who'd wandered off the path. He puts him back on the path. He helps a drunk who'd wandered off the path. He puts him back on the path. He cries when he sees the wedding. He laughs at a man who asked for a pair of shoes uh, that will last for seven years. He laughs at a sorcerer performing his little magic ritual. And then Ashmedai is finally brought to Solomon. And you, these things are not explained. They're just told at this point. And he, Solomon makes him wait for three days to, to visit with him. And um, when they finally get together to have this discussion, he tells Solomon, and I'm leaving out chunks here. I'm just kind of giving you the general overview. Uh, he tells Solomon, hey, the Shamir was given to the, minister, the angelic minister of the sea. And in turn, the angelic minister of the sea has lent the Shamir to the wild rooster. Yes, the wild rooster. That is its name. And, or if you want to say it, uh, what, as the Talmud have is, the Dukifat, which is a fun name. The Dukifat, wild rooster in Aramaic that translates to the mountain cutter. Uh, because what this wild rooster does is he takes the Shamir up to the cragged edges of the mountains where nothing can live, and he puts the shamir down, the shamir splits the mountains, and then the wild rooster comes and throws seeds in the splits, and now trees grow, and people can now use this land, and it becomes inhabitable. Um, now, is it actually a wild rooster, or is it just someone's name who means wild rooster? It's a literal wild rooster, as far as you know, something can be a literal in this crazy story. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it's the first time I heard that I'm like, what, what are you talking about? A wild rooster? <laughs> How does this play a part? Which but, is appropriate that your rooster is, you know, he's, he's just adding to right? the, the, the show. Yeah. It was planted, it, you know, ambiance. Okay. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> so Benaniah goes to find the nest of the wild rooster and he does, and he, comes up with this clever scheme which involves it's right next um, to the hall of the mountain king you said the nest of the wild rooster and it just reminded me of like it's like right next to the hall of the mountain king like, sure why not yeah because, um, yeah it, well and you see Lair how creative Saint george's dragon you know they're all they're neighbors right well but okay so that's one of the cool things about this story is you can really see how these um these jewish scholars at this time have been influenced by the mythologies of the cultures that have been surrounding them. And you can kind of pick up on themes and stuff that they were familiar with because of the time in exile and not just locked away doing Torah study like they should have. You, culture influences. But um, back to that later. So Benaniah goes to the wild rooster. He finds the nest. Um, and while the wild rooster is away doing his work, he covers the nest with glass. And so... The problem is the babies for the wild rooster are in the nest. And so the wild rooster wants to get to his baby. So he puts the shamir on top of the glass and Benaniah throws a, some dirt at him. A dirt clod is what it says and knocks the wild rooster away and is able to get the shamir. And so the wild rooster is so distraught that he can no longer fulfill his oath to the angelic minister of the sea that he strangles himself, and there's a ton of fifth-grade jokes to be made there. But anyway, so Benaniah questioned Ashmedai uh, um, whenever he gets back about the, um, about the actions on the trip. So we kind of have this really weird, harsh break between 
okay, Benadiah's got the Shamir, and now um, we got to talk to Ashmadiah again. And anyway, he says, you know, why did you do these things? On the way home from Jerusalem, why did you help the blind man? And Ashmadiah says, because he was a righteous man, and whoever saves the, a righteous man will achieve merit in the world to come. So you're kind of buying God's favor or grace. Uh, he says that the drunk man was saved because if he continued to live this life of debauchery here on earth, he would use up all the merit he had gained in this world here, and he would never experience any of the, the blessings and benefits in the world to come. He cried at the wedding because the groom would die in 30 days and the bride would have to wait 13 years to be married again due to some really crazy intricacies of Leverite marriage laws, which we're not going to go into. Uh, he laughed at the man who wanted shoes because uh, the shoes that would last seven years because the guy would not live nearly that long. And he laughed because the sorcerer he was using his magic to help all these people find lost things was actually sitting above a great treasury of a king. So, um, so we see that even though Ashmedai's deeds seem good and helpful, they're actually not. That he has this ulterior kind of manipulative motivation that while he may appear to be helping, he's actually making sure that people are receiving the most damage and he he's enjoying when people are are actually hurt so um solomon is said to keep ashmadai there's as a, a whole lot to that story right <laughs> when, when you really just think about that stuff it's like oh it seems like you're helping people but um but we should move yeah. along that's another it, episode i think right well solomon keeps ashmadai because it gets even more interesting until the temple is complete. And he would have the, these questions and answer sessions with Ashmedai during this time. And one day Solomon questioned him and Ashmedai answered, uh, that told Solomon that he would only answer him if Solomon would take off the chain that Benaniah had placed on him that had the name of God. And he said he also wanted to hold Solomon's ring that had the name of God. Now, if you do any kind of research on Solomon and demons online, you're going to find that Solomon's ring's a really big deal, and this is kind of where it started. Um, I don't recommend going into this. Remember, this is a, a story. This is um, folklore. This is not scripture, and we're not even pretending that it is, okay? But I wanted to give you an idea of some background. So Ashmedai takes the ring from Solomon. He swallows it. And he grows so large that he has one wing on earth and one wing in the heaven. And he just throws Solomon off into the far distance. And Solomon is, um, you know, he's, he's lost. He, there's no one to help him. And he commemorates this moment by saying, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun, which is Ecclesiastes 1.3. So during this time, Ashmedai takes Solomon's place on the throne, and everybody thinks that it's Solomon, but it's really Ashmedai disguised as Solomon. And Solomon's forced to just wander around the earth, you know, trying to beg charity and hope that he can make it home. And as he would wonder, he would say, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, Ecclesiastes 1.12. And when he arrives to the Sanhedrin, 
they decide that no man is going to be so fixated, no madman is going to be so fixated on one idea that he cannot be swayed. So they begin to do an investigation. And so they go to Benaniah and they basically ask Benaniah, hey, has he tried to be with you sexually is the implication? And Benaniah says no. And they go to the wives and they said, has he tried to be with you? And they said, absolutely. But when we're menstruating and then they go to Bathsheba and it says that he's forced himself on Bathsheba. And this is when they realize probably not Solomon. And so, you know, the story takes a rather grim, um, grim turn. And they actually, they, at one point they said, they asked the wife said, well, we need you to look at his feet and tell us what his feet look like. And they said, well, he always wears socks. So we don't know what his feet look like. And so when they realize that, you know, this being who is continually sinning against God and violating the Torah can't possibly be Solomon, um, they, they go to so the real Solomon and they give him a new ring and a new chain and with, that's engraved with the name of God. And they take him before Ashmedai and Ashmedai flees at the sight of Solomon. And so Solomon, unfortunately, even though he vanquishes Ashmedai, he never stops being afraid of Ashmedai, according to legend. And they point to Song of Songs 3, 7 through 8, says, Behold is the litter of Solomon, around it 60 strong men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with a sword at his thigh against the terror of the night. And of course, the terror of the night here would be Ashmedai. Uh, other rabbis disagreed. They said that um, uh, Solomon never reclaimed his throne and lived the rest of his days as a commoner. Others say that he was a commoner for a while and then he came back and defeated Ashmedai. And um, then all of a sudden the Talmud uh, turns its discussion to remedies for toothaches and headaches and other natural remedies because this is how the Talmud works. Uh, you don't know where you're going to, to uh, end up. And so now one of the things that we need to remember is this story was not meant to explain how Solomon built the temple without iron. No, but the it does story... shed a whole lot of light on Mel Brooks' brand of humor. <laughs> right? Uh, but it, it was it was meant to explain Ecclesiastes 2.8. Why would he have male and female demons? And so they took this this big hole and this gaping question in First Kings 6 and said, hey, we can plug it in here. We can answer, you know, two questions or kill two birds with one outrageous story. And so we got to remember that that Ecclesiastes as a whole the book totally confused the rabbis or some of them because how does the wisest man on earth end up being so hopeless? How, how does he wind up in this place of despair? And so this helped answer that question. And so they were trying to make sense of this writing on so many different levels. And this is, this is where they grab hold of it. And which makes you really wonder, like, I mean, how, I mean, it makes you wonder about the rabbis, because, I mean, if you've ever been around really smart people working with people who are not as smart as they are, you can understand how a really wise person could could sink into despair. You know, I, I think one of the first time, one of the most stunning things that I had a teacher say to me, I had the, this wonderful professor when I was working on a master's degree, Dr. Hayden. He was my advisor. He was amazing. And he taught wisdom literature. And 
he literally said in class that Job and Ecclesiastes made no sense to him. And I was just blown away because he was one of the most brilliant men I had ever encountered. And to me, coming in as someone who's, you know, a recently divorced woman trying to make sense of faith, these two books are about the only two that actually made sense to me at that point in time. And so, um, but, you know, when you've been raised to believe that if you just do the right thing, God's going to bless you. And that's what the, these Jewish people were taught. I mean, it's in the Torah. Do these things, I bless you. Do these things, I curse you. It's right there in Deuteronomy. And if this is the way you think about things, and now Solomon's going, hey, not only did I do the right thing, I went over and above. Not only did I not use iron on the, the altar to, for the Lord, I didn't use iron on the entire temple. Then he's going, you know, I did everything right, and yet things still go bad. There's mm-hmm. still things that, that aren't making me happy in this world. And so, you know, and I had that season in my life. I knew how that went. And I think anybody who's honest has probably been there at some point in time. There's a few exceptions, I'm sure, because I don't think Dr. Hayden was was lying to me. But, you know, this is actually more than just a fanciful story. And we're going to get into next week how this is a commentary on how Solomon comes to power. And it's kind of reframing some of the things that... W- happened in first kings one through four and there there really are some interesting things that it opens some doors to and shed some light on and you know and i'm not going to lie and say hey i came up with this and i realized this no this is uh the work of dr david silbers who i'm going to be pulling from for that because he made it make sense to me Mm -hmm. because otherwise i was just going this is so crazy what were they smoking there's no way a rational human being sat down and came up with this as a reasonable explanation for anything in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but th- there is a purpose here. And the, the main reason I want to talk about it is because there is this tendency in Christian, <clears throat> Christian circles to dismiss the Talmud as something wholly evil and wicked. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and they point to stories like this and they go, see? See, there's no way that could be true. Why would Solomon talk to a demon? Okay. Yeah. Well, and and the thing is, a lot of those people who are going to dismiss the Talmud as completely evil are are the ones who utter utter statements like God only gave us ten commandments, and the rabbis turned them into six hundred and thirteen. Right. Or they believe things like the scorpions in Revelation are actually helicopters. Uh, you know, yeah, which they, is a whole nother. Well, I mean, but the the. That's kind of, we do the same thing. We forget that it's still part of our DNA as human beings to try to make sense of the scripture and we wind up in crazy land. And you just start reading, you know, the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. I mean, yeah, that was in the 80s. So now we can like look at it and go, yeah, that was ridiculous. But in the 80s, do you remember how many people were caught up in that? Mm -hmm. But, you know, the Left Behind series, I mean, Revelation is a really good book to do it with because. There are so many unanswered questions. Yeah, and... which which really is kind of its own answer to the question that a lot of a, a lot of the critics of the information we're going through, a lot mm-hmm. of people who say, "Oh, well, why is this stuff just now coming to light? Why is it this important?" Well, it's because we're just now getting the technology that's good enough to come up with these wild, crazy theories. Maybe God in his wisdom, you know, cuz he's kind of wise 
if anyone yeah. hasn't picked up on that. Might Maybe God in his wisdom is kind of bringing a lot of the stuff back to light, back to the surface, increasing our understanding of the ancient world because we've gotten so far away from where we were that mm-hmm. we are it, people are investing in these crazy theories and and all this information's coming back around and going no you idiots it's this <laughs> simple and so that to me it's like when people ask well well if, if we needed this stuff to understand the bible then why has it been hidden for so long it's because we didn't need it to understand mm-hmm. the bible appropriately until the last few hundred years when technology and education and things have been spiraling into these crazy theories that have gone so far afield of where they were originally written. So that's uh, my take on why it's just now coming around, because God saw fit to preserve this stuff for us so that we could, well, when we got we so far realize... removed, we could find our way back. Well, yeah, because a lot of these written uh, early source documents that I'm trying to to look at, they were written at a time when the 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 uh, oral traditions were were being threatened, where all of the the stories and the the things that people just shared from one generation to another were starting to be infringed upon by distance, mm-hmm. by um, you know the fact that they were spread across so much of the land and that the language of the Hebrew language itself was starting to disappear. And so it's really interesting to me that we're seeing a resurfacing of some of these stories as oral tradition is kind of um, once again being lost at another level. Mm -hmm. And we aren't sharing these things generation to generation. And so we, I want to re-examine some of these things because sometimes we need to come up against the, the fallacies in these traditions. Uh, one of the things I was thinking of is the flat earth idea. Mm-hmm. You know, how many people have fallen for that because, oh, well, look, here's the, the argument that can be made from quote unquote scripture. And here's the traditions that we can appeal to outside of scripture. And people just grab hold of that and they run in like crazy circles until everyone around them stirred up and frenzied with them. And so we talk about this stuff, not to say we're endorsing these stories or that you need to understand these stories in order to understand how to be saved or know God, but to help you understand people have always been people. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. always come up with crazy ways to to understand stuff. And sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's harmful. Yeah. And so we need to be able to look at ancient sources and say, this is helpful and harmful. But we need to learn that skill so we can look at today's sources and say, this is helpful and this is harmful. Yeah, because so, I, I can probably, I mean, I, I won't guarantee, but I, I've got a pretty good <laughs> guess that a lot of the new resources that have come around there's probably a lot more harmful new resources that have come around in the last you know few hundred years since the printing press than there were in a lot of this ancient writing oh my goodness yes yes and once again just because something is old does not make it true um i don't know how often we need to say that but um evidently this is like so many people's criteria for for what constitutes truth an ancient, it's it got to be an ancient writing. Mm-hmm. Um, people lied back then. They lie today. They embellish. And they still embellish. So we have to learn how to use discernment. Mm-hmm. And how do we know how to use, use discernment? 
It's by actually studying the scriptures that have been preserved for us. Mm -hmm. And I know it seems like, well, Emily, this is a really weird way to prove that when you're going, you know, out here and grabbing hold of this crazy story. But I want to bring this story into a light where you can see how it helps us understand, but it can also detract. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons why it's a big detraction is because we haven't been taught how to think about the Bible. And right. we've got to remember the audience that these rabbis were talking to were people who, who actually thought about the Bible. Yeah. And so and there's... And, yeah. Well, and, and this is also where I want to point out, this is what separates us from the crazy conspiracy theory web, uh, <laughs> you know, web channel, podcast, YouTube, whatever. We will present this stuff and say, these are some writings people had about it. Mm -hmm. We're not sure what to think about it. Where I have heard right. uh, a good number of podcasts when they come up to this stuff, they're like, well, this is just secret knowledge that the church has kept away from you. And it's not secret. It, it's it, not secret. It, yeah, exactly. Well, number, yeah, number one, it's not secret, but it's, but they're, they're like, they will present it as though it's the facts and that it's been covered up. And so, no. <laughs> This is where we're kind of going, okay, we're not sure what to think about this, but here's what some people have thought. So I just want to throw that out there. We're not going crazy, uh, you know, yeah. hidden knowledge conspiracy theorist on this. We're, we definitely have. <laughs> so anytime somebody tells you that they found like some ancient secret document that the Vatican has kept in their basement forever, basically what they're telling you is they recently learned how to read. Okay, because those documents are all over the internet. You can find them everywhere, and they were in libraries before that. And so, come on, guys, it, 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 don't fall for it. Do not fall for it. But a, so, but a book titled "All the Good People in the World Have Told You Is True" doesn't sell as well. Right, right. <laughs> because God, God doesn't want you to actually have the truth. He wants you to have something less is kind of the, the mindset that they, they are telling you they have mm -hmm. that God can, it can be foiled. He can be fooled. He can be, you know, played by some kind of organization of men and women, but he, he, that's not true. He said, he's going to tell you what you need to know. And he's done that for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And so we just need to accept that. And, you know, it's all this other stuff fun to, to look at and interesting. Absolutely. But again, it doesn't make it true. It just might shed some light on how people think and how they process, and that's the only reason we're looking at it. Right. So, anyhow, we'll talk more about that next week because oh, yeah. that's going to be fun. Oh, it's going to be all <laughs> kinds of fun. Well, um, I think I'm just going to title this episode, What? Um, <laughs> because that's kind of where I am. Um, like, we had talked a little bit about some of this stuff, but I didn't realize how far a lot of this stuff went. So, anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, that being said, hey, if you have anything else to add, confuse us more, clarify things, whatever. Either way, I don't know. Just bring it on. Uh, Raven Creek SC is the, the handle on social media. Uh, RavenCreekSC.com is the website. And uh, just, you know, like it. If you like it, be part of the conversation. Give us a like. Give us a review. Share us with a friend. If you don't like us, share with some of you who don't like. Um, whatever you got. I mean, if there's a troll on the internet, that you you just want to like give him some fodder, <laughs> you know, just send it to his page. See what see what happens. I think we both may need some sleep at this point. <laughs> um, 
actually, I'm the. I think the problem is I got too much sleep this week. Okay, so now uh, I'm officially so jealous. I, okay. I got. Well, I'm not trying to brag. It's. Uh, I'm annoyingly alert at six a.m. So anyway, I'll I'll talk to you later. Everyone, have a good time. We'll we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.